Welcome to Wheat Beats Word here on Real Agriculture for Wednesday, September the 13th. On this episode of The Word, Plant 24 is underway, baby. Where's that heat the weatherman promised us? Hey, you want yield? It takes maximum nutrients. And then agronomy answers whatever weird, wild, and wonderful ideas I can come up with to answer all the questions that have come in over the last week. Let's go First off, before I start, I just want to say, if you are ever in Ottawa, gosh, go visit the Diefenbunker Museum. Now, we spent the weekend in Ottawa. Can you get this? This Wheat Pete has never walked around the Parliament buildings before, and you just go, how can a guy your age, Pete, that gets around quite a bit, how have you never been to Ottawa and done a bunch of stuff in Ottawa? Well, there you go. Hadn't been. Got to the Diefenbunker Museum. If you get a chance, it is an incredible piece of history, of Canada's history. The tour guide that we had, if you get a chance, take the guided tour, 90 minutes, well worth the money. The tour guide was 83 years old, actually worked on the dew line, the distance early warning line, way back when it was first put up. So there's just so much history there. Here's the other cool thing. No government money into that museum. It's all run by donations and volunteers, and you just go, how can you keep doing this? But it is, it is an incredible piece of history. Lots of other cool stuff in Ottawa as well, but that is one that absolutely blew me away. Okay, I want to move on, and yes, Plant 24 is underway, and... The theme is, we're a few days later than last year. It's just the way it's working out across the board in 2023. It's not a real surprise, but we have canola in the ground. Six days to get up canola. Winter barley planted up in five days. Lots of wheat going in. Some new seedings. A bit late for new seedings, by the way, Elvern. I'd like to have them in in August. This is September. And I know you're going to say, yeah, Pete, you told me that before. I did it. It worked fine. Go for it. But just remember, you are a little bit on the late side. But nonetheless, lots of stuff going in. And that is awesome. The early planted stuff always wins. I actually wish the canola had been planted in late August rather than on the, whatever it was, the 6th of September, something like that. But at least it's up and going, and hopefully we get a chance. Meanwhile, you know, this corn crop is late. And last week I said, I'm not worried because, doggone it, look at the weather forecast above normal temperatures. Where the heck did those temperatures go? Oh, we had a couple of warm days, but nonetheless, it has gotten cold. In fact, frost warnings in northern Ontario over this Wednesday, Thursday, Friday period. Remember, whenever it goes below 9 Celsius, the corn crop loses the next day. If it goes below 4 Celsius, the corn crop actually loses 3 days. And you kind of go, man, that that isn't where we want to be at this time of year because we need at least till kind of October the 10th to really finish this corn crop. However, I did mention 1992. A grower had asked, you know, how does this compare to 1992? And I said, we're way better. Well, as usual, my great friend, Nature Nut Nick, coming through with the actual data, love data, in 1992, I think it was on August 31st, he sent me the, the numbers. I believe that was correct, but whatever. It's, it's, it's relative. 1992, at Strathroy, Nick had 2,354 crop heat units accumulated in 2023, 
2,566. So more than 200, about 8% more heat in 2023 than we had in 1992. Uh, now to temper that, we are growing longer season corn hybrids. So that's another thing to think about. But nonetheless, we're way ahead of 1992. We just don't like those cold nights. So for goodness sakes, you know, Mr. Weatherman, give us some more heat. We need some more heat. Ah, yeah. And then you look at the markets. And all I'm going to say on the markets is boo. Holy mackerel. It just seems like they, they just keep, they're in a downtrend. And every time a report comes out, they just seem to trickle down more and more. Uh, they will turn around at some point, And I'm no marketing guru, but a lot of, of marketing experts are not very positive on this on the market right now. So I guess you just have to either take take your lumps or you just wait and see. On the other hand, the yields that are coming in are just really quite a bit better than we might have anticipated. So the cranberry bean yields, we're at the crans. I haven't heard any white beans. They're, like Certainly the edible bean harvest is underway. Cran yields have ranged from slightly below average where there was too much water damage. All that rain in July, it just can't take that. So where there's too much water damage, they are just you know, a bit below average, which says where they're good, they're good. And where there wasn't a lot of water damage, the cranberry bean yields have been excellent. So hopefully that bodes well. All right, going to move on. And Diego saying, hey, Peter. So Diego's, by the way, from Argentina. But it really relates to everything that, that we do here as well. Says, how can I jump from four-ton wheat? I seem to be four ton per hectare wheat. I'm kind of stuck there. How do I jump to six ton per hectare wheat? Like, how do you make that leap? And John at the Oxford Soil and Crop Meeting saying, hey, Peter, the new record soybean yield, 206.8 bushel per acre soybeans. They grow them in wide rows. You know, they're putting on multiple applications. We get with the program. We got we to follow this. Meanwhile, Brett sending me some old, old, old videos from a gentleman by the name of Herman Warsaw. And Herman was the record corn holder way back in the 80s. He, over I think a 20-year period, he had a 271 bushel per acre corn yield average on a particular piece of ground, whereas most people in the area were about 120. He was, he was over double what the average yield was, and you just say, okay, what's going on with all this stuff? So first off, Diego, the only way you can jump from four to six ton wheat is to figure out why last year you didn't get six ton wheat. There's no easy answer. There's no magic bullet. You have to figure out what your limiting factors are, and then you ask Wheat Pete, how do we mitigate those limiting factors? Or ask another agronomist. But that's really what we can do as farmers is try to mitigate our limiting factors. And you can do all the mitigation you want. And if you end up with a super hot, dry grain fill period for wheat so that you shorten that grain fill period, you're going to have low yields. There's just no way yet that we know to get around some of those environmental factors. But John, you know, following that the recipe for 206.8 bushel soybeans, well, that's in Georgia under irrigation. And if, as Horst Bonner would say, you can follow that. You can put all those inputs in. And you will gain some yield. You might gain, I don't know, you might gain 10 bushels, horse data, 12 bushels if you're really lucky. 
But at the end of the day, you're going to spend way more than what you're going to gain by following that. So it's great to look at that and say, where do I kind of pick out something to apply and bring it here on my farm and try it? But the chances of us ever getting, you know, over 200 bushel soybeans is, is pretty much zero. And you just have to realize that we are in a different part of the world. And Brett, Herman Warsaw, yeah, how did he do that? Well, it's all, it was corn on corn, by the way, which, you know, everybody is saying, oh, Pete, you're going to just go off the deep end about corn after corn. But in, Her, in Herman's case just nutrients out the yin-yang. He was putting on 500 pounds of nitrogen. He was putting on 20 tons of dry beef manure every year. Like the amount of inputs that he put into that field. And then he got carbon cycling going. He had so much residue, it would break down. It would provide more nutrients. If you have a field that grows big crops, it's always going to grow bigger crops than a field that never grows good crops and they can be side by side and it all comes down to this carbon cycling lots of people talk carbon sequestration we've discussed this before on the word carbon sequestration in agriculture is a really tough gig but man carbon cycling is pretty easy and that's where the yield is and that's where we can actually do a better job so be careful on how many nutrients you put on. You can put on way too many. It becomes an environmental problem. If Herman Warsaw was farming today, I expect the nitrogen coming out of his tile drains would be through the roof. There's no way we can do that. But if we can get the carbon cycling and build those nutrients up, keep them in the medium levels, boy, we can certainly drive the bar a lot higher than where we currently have it. Okay, I'm going to move on. And I, Tom asking about bin cast. So bin cast and spray cast, uh, they still exist. You actually decision farming. Just go to decision farms and you have to sign up, but it's free. And then you can put in the location of your farm and bin cast will tell you when to turn the fan on, when to turn the fan off. Uh, same with spray cast. They're great decision-making tools, but it's no longer when it's called Decision Farms. You can Google it, get there, and that will help you a lot. Out in eastern Ontario and into Quebec, Rob sending in that, wow, if you grew the wrong spring wheat variety, and this is where GoCereals.ca, go to GoCereals.ca, have a look at the fusarium ratings, and we don't always get fusarium, but in eastern Ontario and out through the Quebec and the Maritimes, they got a lot of fusarium in the spring wheat. And if you grew Wilkin, now remember, Wilkin stands like trees. It has excellent yield potential. Its weakness is fusarium. If you grew Wilkin and did not spray it, and apparently there are growers that grew Wilkin and didn't spray it because... 2022, we didn't have fusarium, and farmers only have a one-year memory. But if you grew Wilkin or some of the other more susceptible varieties and you didn't spray, we have dawn levels, you know, way up into 10 parts per million. If you grew a variety, even like Wilkin, and you sprayed it and did the perfect job most of the time, it's at least making a grade three. And if you grew a more resistant variety, something like Raven, if you, again, go to Go Cereals, more resistant variety and sprayed it, you've got excellent wheat and it's kind of one of the we don't always see that the management the grower management trumps mother nature but in this particular case 
doing those management factors to, to mitigate your, your environmental concerns, they really, really worked. And that's a nice win, that's for sure. Okay, want to move on. And Abram calling in and say, just, just, I don't know, saying, Pete, come on. You talked about raising the cutting height of your silage and getting better quality. Well, Abram had done some tests and he says, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. No, Abram, if you look at the body of evidence, and, and I'm not sure exactly what happened with your trials, but I think you should repeat them. If you raise the cutting height, you will increase the, the starch content and that only makes sense because the cob is where the starch is so if you take less stock you're going to increase the starch content you increase the starch content you increase the energy because the starch is where the energy is and you're going to increase digestibility as well because i i know i said the bottom of the stock was wood fair enough it's not wood that's a maybe a poor analogy but the bottom of the stock has a lot more lignin and a lot more or pardon me a lot less digestibility yeah it has some energy but it has less digestibility so the reality is if you're short feed or if it's a dry year for goodness sakes do not reduce cutting height but if you're long feed and you want maximum milk out of those dairy cows, you want maximum gain out of those beef steers, then you can cut higher. Yes, you'll take less yield. You'll take two, three tons less per acre. But the energy level in that silage is going to be better. And, and Abram, you're probably right. From the cob up, we should just throw that away. I don't know. I haven't done those tests. But man, it's, it's all about cob to stock ratio. And so if we get a little less stock and we still have enough feed in the bunk, then we're going to have higher energy and better digestibility. That, the, that, that data is really, really clear in the research. want to move on. I want to talk about fertility. So tons of, of phosphorus questions coming in right now, which is really great. Jason saying, okay, Pete, I got a 6 to a 12 phosphorus test on the Malik scale. And I'm going, Jason, why Malik? Uh, anyway, we generally use the, the Olson test here in Ontario and most other places, not in Ohio, not maybe in Michigan, but I think, Jason, you're from Ontario. Regardless, 6 to 12 Malik would be like a, I don't know, a 3 to a 8 or something like that on the Olson test. And Jason's saying, should I switch from a 624.6 liquid on my wheat to something like an 11.37.0. I didn't even know they made an 11.37. I thought it was 10.34, but it just they must be able to get more of that MAP dissolved, more of that ammonium phosphate into that, which is great. When it comes to wheat, Jason, the answer is yes. It's all about phosphorus, and it's a phosphorus... The more phosphorus, the better the wheat typically is. Nothing wrong with 624.6, but you don't need the potash on the wheat crop. Total reverse on corn. So on corn, I would say stick with the 624.6 because corn needs the potash. But wheat is a bit of a unique beast. Stay with more phosphorus if you can at all. Tom saying, hey, Pete, is Mez worth the additional $150 per ton that it's going to cost me. I have an air cart. It's the first time that I've used this through an air cart. And in our data, MAP versus MES versus TOPFOS, like any phosphorus source, it's all about the amount of phosphorus you put down the tube. There's no real difference in the source that you're using. The zinc 
and the sulfur that the mez brings hasn't shown much of a benefit in the wheat crop because we put sulfur on in the spring and mostly our wheat isn't zinc deficient. So the only reason it would be worth the extra $150 per ton for the mez is because it's a better granule and that would be true if we were still getting a lot of Russian map. The Russian map tends to be dustier, just the process they use. Most of the map right now is coming from Morocco and it's a better quality map most of the time. So is it worth the extra 150 bucks? Man, if you plug the air cart, the answer will be yes. But most of the time from a crop response standpoint, it doesn't matter what the phosphorus source is on wheat. It's just called phosphorus, phosphorus, and more phosphorus. Okay, want to move on. And Clark saying, hey, Pete, I got lima beans, and they always look potash deficient. Meanwhile, the potash soil test is 200. We've tried applying liquid potash. We've side-dressed potash. It just, there's something wrong in that particular field. We've seen it before. And immediately I say, well, you know what? And, and this is interesting because we don't always link these together. But soybean cyst nematode affects a much wider host range than just soybeans. We know it affects azuki beans almost more than it affects soybeans. And lima beans are a host. So if you get situations like this, anytime you see potash deficiency, almost for sure, with sufficient potash in the soil test, of course, then it's almost for sure a root issue. There's some reason the roots aren't getting that potash. So Clark, as Albert Tenuta would say about soybean cyst nematode, take the test, beat the pest. Get out there, do that soil sample, and my guess is that you might have an, a soybean cyst nematode problem that, that now you've got to deal with that some other way. Mark saying, hey Pete, like what's going on? Why is the corn so tall? And you know, when you step back, the corn is super tall. We've had this question quite a bit. Corn height is really determined by the soil temperature from planting up until, or from the three leaf stage up until V5. If you think about 2023, we had warm, dry soils. Wet soils are always cold soils. May was quite dry. In fact, we were had situations where growers were planting in dry soil. That is warm soil. So that warm soil immediately means that we're going to see a little bit taller corn. Then once we hit V5 and we get into the rapid stem elongation stage, it's day length and it's sunshine and it's also temperature. And again, if you think back through that time frame, well, we didn't plant ultra early. We planted most of the corn got planted kind of, I don't know, 9th of 10th of May, somewhere in that that sweet spot in May, if you will, that moved the crop into a little bit longer days. The temperatures were warm. It was staying reasonably dry through that period. So all of that is good. Plus, we had zero stress. Normally, if you get get high temperatures, if you get real drought stress, you'll shorten the crop. You get high temperatures, you'll shorten the crop. Remember, we had almost no days over 30 degrees Celsius. We didn't have a lot of cold nights. And when the corn crop needed rain, by the time it really needed rain, we got the rain. So it's a stress-free year with ideal conditions almost every stage of that corn crop. So yeah, we have 12-foot high corn. And with that, I am once again way over time. That's it. That's all on behalf of the team here at Real Agriculture. This is Wheat Pete.
with the word for Wednesday, September the 13th. Hey, keep the questions, the plots, the comments coming, and I'll be back to talk again way too long next week. See you then. Thank you.